So I'm uh, going from here down the airport to pick up Daniel, who is a friend of mine from New Zealand. And uh, you'll like him. And he's going to be here tomorrow. And he's also going to be uh, running the church in the pub for the next two weeks, God willing, because Cindy and I and the kids are going to be back in Latvia. And uh, But we'll be back. And so we're doing the venue today. And tomorrow, God willing, then there's a break. Uh, until the new year because the venue itself is going to be closed and we're going to pick up here again on Monday the 8th Monday the 8th of January so we're coming to the end of Acts and uh, Acts 28 these are the very last very last part of the chapter so let's start let's start with a prayer okay let's pray Heavenly Father, through the Lord we come to you to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the Lord Jesus. And that on this cold and rainy winter day, you can shine into our hearts with the saving knowledge of your Son. And we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, who perhaps was the greatest man who followed Jesus. And we pray that we might pick up something, reading now the very final part of his great life. Please hear us, Father, for the Lord's sake. Amen. So, remember what we got up to yesterday, that they'd been shipwrecked and they were on Malta. They had to stay there until the winter was over. And after three months, we set sail on a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered on the island, whose sign was Castle and Pollux. Landing at Syracuse, that's in, uh, in Sicily, we stayed there three days. And from there, we circled round and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. So, he's been told that he has got to witness for the Lord Jesus at Rome. But this journey that he took from Caesarea in Palestine, or Israel, as we would call it, his journey there was a total disaster. Shipwreck, they got stuck here and there, then they got stuck on the island of Malta, they got stuck on the island of Crete for a little bit, and yet with all that mess going on, with all that mess going on, everything apparently going wrong, God kept working through it. And so, for example, we saw that when he stopped on the island of Crete, he actually made some converts there. And now he's three months on the island of Malta and he cures people and people accept the Lord. Again, it's all in God's purpose. Well, finally, they get a a boat to Syracuse in Sicily. I've been there, actually, called Syracuse in Sicily. And uh, you can see remains of churches right back from the very earliest uh, times of Christianity. So again... He made converts there. He's only there three days. But he got Christianity going there. And he's an old man now, with partially sighted, etc. Then he says, in the boat, we circled around and eventually got to Regia. Well, actually, it's a straight, straight journey there. But the wind was obviously against them. And I said to you before that the word for wind and the word for spirit in Hebrew and Greek, are the same word. And so, yeah, the wind was against them and made him circle around, but what is the wind? The wind is the spirit. And so God's hand in your life sometimes results in apparently you're going round in circles, apparently wasting your time, 
Life is just existence rather than living. But for us, no, there is this wider purpose. And if you're in Christ, you have a destination. You have an end point to your journey. You are not just existing in a pointless way like most people do. And then the south wind sprang up. The second day we came to Puteoli. So, yeah, then, okay, then the spirit, the wind blew right straight behind them and they got a straight course. And that's how it goes in life. Sometimes God is there confirming you. Other times it seems blowing you around in circles. But all the same, it is all the work of his spirit in your life. Nothing is actually random. Nothing is chance. It's not that some things in life are kind of controlled by God, but other things is just bad luck or good luck. That is not how it is in our lives. How it is maybe for the unbeliever, but if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you see his hand in your life, that he loves you and he wants you to come to salvation, nothing is wasted. You may think they were wasted years. Maybe you had a relationship that, that just, you look back at it and think, oh, that's a waste. Wasted time. No, actually nothing is wasted. In the bigger final picture, the Lord is using all this to prepare us for salvation. So he gets to Puteoli, where we found believers, and stayed with them seven days. So he gets to this town. Oh, are there any Christians here? Oh, yeah, there are. Well, straight away, he's connected with them. You see, if I seriously believe that I'm going to live forever and ever, by God's grace and his kingdom, and you believe that, and you and me are going to live together forever and ever and ever, straight away we have a connection. If I believe that my sins have been forgiven and dealt with by the death and the blood of the Lord Jesus, and you believe the same, and you think that's wonderful, and so do I, then we are connected, we are together. And that's why, you see, he gets to some random town he's probably never been to before. Oh, are there any Christians here? He sniffs them out, and they hang out together seven days. And so we came towards Rome, and from there the brothers, when they heard of us, came to meet us as far as the market of Appius and a place called the Three Taverns. And when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. So it's quite a long journey. Don't forget they didn't have cars and uh, trains and stuff like that in those days. These believers in Rome were so happy that they went out on this journey and met him, and he saw them coming towards him, thought, that's them. That's the Christians, and he took courage. You see, that is what fellowship is like. This is not the same as churchianity, trooping along to a church. Um, it's not the same as accepting Christianity as a culture. Oh, well, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm a Christian. My mum and dad were, my grandparents were, I got baptised as a kid. No, no, this is something more live and more real than that when we entered into Rome Paul was permitted to live by himself with the soldier that guarded him now when you read in the Bible you need to put the whole thing together and you get a lovely picture when you put it all together because putting it together he says that he was chained all the time to a Roman soldier he was chained to a soldier and you've probably seen that if you go to hospital, particularly the casualty, the A&E, you'll see that, you'll see the police bringing some guy in for treatment and he's actually chained to them. I saw it yesterday down the road in Mayday Hospital, I went to see my dad 
And here's this fairly young bloke being brought in, um, and he was chained. He was on a chain to uh, a circo guy, to a, uh, you know, to a guard. And that's how Paul would have been. And several times he says, I regret my chain. When he's writing his letters, he says it also when he's on trial. He disliked this, of course, being chained, that he didn't have freedom. You're chained to this guard. And, well, yeah, not great. But when he writes to the Philippians, he says to them, don't worry about me, I know I'm in prison, but don't worry about me. And he says, the things that happened to me actually worked out to the spreading of the gospel. Because he said, there are people in Caesar's personal bodyguard who now believe. How did that happen? How could it be that there were soldiers who were Caesar's personal bodyguards who became Christian? How do you think that happened? Well, there's Paul, and he's chained day and night to a Roman soldier. They probably took shifts. That one guy did it for eight hours, and the next bloke comes, does it for eight hours, and Paul goes to sleep, but, you know, another guy is there for eight hours. Right? So he's got, what, two or three, and maybe they did 12-hour shifts, I don't know, but um, he's got two or three soldiers per day who are chained to Paul. He was chained to them, but more like in God's plan, they were chained to him. And what does he do? You, you get the impression of Paul that he's always preaching the gospel. What does he do? He preaches to them and somehow baptizes them. And they take the message to other soldiers, including to Caesar's personal bodyguard. And then you actually... Uh, read in the New Testament that there were members of Caesar's household who were Christians. Wow. There were members of Caesar's household, I suppose his sort of extended family. Caesar was by far the most powerful guy on the planet. And of course he was not a Christian. But there were people in Caesar's family and his bodyguards who were Christians. All because of that chain that Paul says when he's on trial for his life, he says, I, he says to the judge, I wish you were like me, a Christian, apart from this chain. Like he, he re- re- resented the thing because it, of course, limited his freedom. He'd spent his life as a, as a missionary, traveling around here, there and everywhere, and he's chained. And sometimes it is that the things that we resent the most, that apparently limit our freedom, this autistic child, this elderly parent with dementia or Alzheimer's that I have to care for, lack of money, this family situation, this domestic situation, whatever it might be, that appears to be a chain, that appears to tie me down, You see, God works through those things. And don't think, oh, if I had money, oh, I could go and preach the gospel. Oh, if I had a better domestic situation, oh, I could do a lot more for the Lord. It's not like that. That's not how it is. You see, God works through all that stuff in order to glorify himself and in order to spread the message. 
So, that's a great thing about him being the, the good that came out of this experience. And you see that he had a certain amount of freedom. He was allowed to live by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Well, verse 17, it came to pass after three days, he's only just arrived in Rome after a totally traumatic journey that probably took four or five months. You know, most people would have said, oh, well, you know, I've just got to get over the journey and then I'll, you know, get on with things. Oh, no. After three days, he calls the Jews together and he wants to preach to them. You get that very strong sense that he's bursting with this gospel that he's got inside him. And you and me are the same. You see, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus, you are in Christ. You are the light of the world. He said, didn't he? I am the light of the world. And he said, you are the light of the world. So we have in our hands the power to give people eternity. That's massive. That is massive. It's like if you went out on the high street there with a whole wad of 50 pound notes, genuine ones, not like off the photocopier, and said, guys, honestly, if you, if you need 50 quid, I'm just giving it out. You get a line, you get a riot. Like people lining up, I want the 50 quid. Yeah, 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 yeah. People taking it, looking at it, yeah, it's the real thing. Go and spend it. Yeah, yeah, it's the real thing. It got checked in the money checker. Yeah, 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 this is the real thing. But you see, we're standing there with more than 50 good notes. We are standing there with eternity. And not only eternity, but the power to break so much, to get forgiveness of sin, to deal with your past because of Jesus, because of the Lord's work. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. And we have it in our hands. He's just bursting with it. So after three days, he calls them all together. And he gives, he gives a talk. He said, brothers, although I did nothing wrong against the people, that's the Jewish people, all the customs of our fathers, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. But when they'd examined me, desired to set me free because there was no cause for putting me to death. When the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had something to, of which to accuse my nation. Well, not quite, Paul. He said, I did nothing, verse 17, against the customs, the traditions of, of the Jews. Uh, yeah, he did. He was telling them, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to keep the Sabbath. You don't need to keep the Jewish food laws, you can eat pigs. Oh man, that, that, that's totally against the Jewish customs. But he says to these Jews who come to him, oh, you know, I, I, I didn't say anything against our customs, our traditions. Now you read his letters, you read the account of his preaching, big time he did. And then he says, well, you know, I, um, I could have, they wanted, the, the Romans wanted to set me free. I could have been free, but I chose to come here. Not quite, Paul. That's not quite what happened. He said to them, that I, I want to appeal to Caesar. And they said, look, you've done nothing wrong. You can be free. No, I want to go to Caesar. He's spinning the narrative a bit. And we discussed when we read about his trials, when he stands in front of, the, uh, of his judge and says, 
I've had a good conscience before God all my life until this day. And I said, well, that wasn't quite the case because the Lord Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the prods. Like he was prodding him. And, of course, he had done a lot of bad things. He murdered and tortured Christians and so on. So, what's all this about? I think, although, as I keep saying, Paul was the top bloke. I mean, he, he was the best Christian. It seems to me that, like all of us, as we get older in particular, and he was an old man now, we have a way of rewriting the past. We have a way of rewriting our own narrative that actually, well, bad things we did in the past, yeah, actually, it wasn't my fault, it was her fault. That was all because of my ex. That was uh, uh, because of them or because of this situation. Well, I'm a self-pretty good bloke. You see, we do have a tendency to rewrite our narratives to kind of make ourselves look somewhat cleaner than we are. And... In another sense, Paul does accept his sinfulness. But in another way, I suggest all this is a bit of a rewriting of narratives. And now, if you're in regular contact with the Lord, the Lord Jesus, one of the functions of his spirit, of the Holy Spirit, of the Comforter, is to convict of sin. And that does not mean that you walk around sort of depressed and all that about your past or your failures. <laughs> But it does help you to look at yourself realistically. Paul says about the breaking of bread, which we're now going to do, he says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So I suggest that actually, by reconstructing in your own mind the death of Jesus, that he was there on the cross dying for your sins, on a day in April, on a hill just outside Jerusalem, on a Friday afternoon, 2000 or whatever years ago, that as you imagine yourself standing there, you are convicted, you are convicted of your sin. Quite rightly so. And I think it's the only thing that actually helps us to come to a true narrative about ourselves. And yet, we are thereby also likewise persuaded totally that all my past, all my sin is dealt with. I'm not going to be depressed, I'm not going to be messed up mentally because of all that stuff. It's been dealt with, but it, it does give us the only, I would suggest, realistic way to deal with this. So, verse 23, when they had appointed him a day, they came to him into his lodging in great number. Well, he's got a fairly big place. Uh, and we're told uh, at the end of here in verse 30, he stayed two years in his own hired dwelling and welcomed all that visited him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, no one forbidding him. Uh, he obviously had access to money. Somebody funded him. Uh, to do that for two years. Uh, the house where he was living, sure, he was chained to a Roman soldier, but he had freedom uh, to invite people round and to use it as a church, uh, I guess. 
Now I keep saying that you've got to read the whole Bible. When you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is Paul writing from prison to Timothy, uh, you get a very different picture. Things didn't carry on like this. Because he says, I've had to give my answer before Caesar and no one stood with me. All the other Christians didn't want to know me. He's a man who was rejected by the church in Rome. We just read, first of all, when he first came there, oh, they were running out of Rome, travelling a couple of days down to Appii Fordham to meet him. Oh, and he's so encouraged. But a picture you get in, when he writes to Timothy is very different. He said, oh, they don't want to know me now. Yeah, he was on his own. And he says, can you bring my, my cloak? Guess because he was cold. And can you bring me something to write with? Can you bring me some, basically, paper and pen? Uh, he's very different. And he says, I haven't got long to go now. Uh, I know I'm about to be offered. But I know that I shall be saved. So he's facing death. And he says to Timothy, can you just drop everything and come to me right away? Because they've all forsaken me. I'm on my own. And as I say, he says, and bring my cloak with you, or bring a cloak with you. Uh, in other words, he's cold. Uh, it's winter. He says, please come. Be with me at the end. But he says, I'm totally confident that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I'm confident that there is, you know, eternity is laid up for me. So, how did Paul die? He died, I would say, a hard death. I mean, according to... Um, Tradition, thank you. He was he, he was beheaded, um, possibly thrown to the lions by Nero. But when that happened, he was alone. The other Christians didn't want to know him. And as he writes in a number of his letters, there was a lot of opposition to him in the churches that he had founded. So we might think of the Apostle Paul and think, oh yeah, when he died, I guess like he got a royal send-off from all the Christians and everyone was really sad and they all looked back and said, oh yeah, what a good guy he was, he brought me to Christ. No, that wasn't how it was at all. He says, all those in Asia have forsaken me. All the converts he made in Asia Minor, all those churches, they all turned away from him. This is what he says to Timothy. He says, please, please, can you come just to be with me at the end? And this is how it is when you face your end who wants to die alone? You know, you want at least someone to hold your hand. Especially if, if he was facing death by execution, uh, then sure, he wanted someone at least to be with him. Maybe he was thrown to the lions. Maybe. And so, in the end, I think that is how it is, that each man does face death alone. If you come to the end of your days with uh, you know, your kids and grandkids around your bedside in the hospice and they all sort of, you know, uh, holding your hand as you, as you breathe your last breath, well, you're very lucky. That's not how most people go. That's not how most people go. You may at various points in your life have had a load of friends, maybe big family, but it's very unlikely that you come to the classic ending, the classic party, 
I bet most of us here won't come to that. And God in his wisdom has set that up, it seems to me. God in his wisdom, for us as believers, sort of made it like that. That it wouldn't be like that. Because if you're alone at the end, well, who, who do you turn to? To your best friend, to the Lord Jesus. And who's your true family? Those who have gone before. Those who have loved the Lord and have died. Uh, with whom you shall eternally live in God's kingdom. So, you know, I just mentioned that because we're all getting older here, aren't we? We're not, we're not a bunch of teenagers exactly. And you do think about your death. You do think about it. And, don't, you know, look at Paul. Yeah, he had two years living in his own hired house, all very nice, yep, yep, chained to a Roman soldier. But factor in to Timothy chapter 4, where he says, well, they've all turned away from me. Timothy, please, please, can you just come to me? Bring my cloak, cold. Bring me something to write with. Bring me parchment, he says. Couldn't even get that. So he didn't stay like this. This is where you've got to put the whole Bible together to get the true picture. But he says, I know that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So, we're going to take the bread and the juice that represent the body and blood of the Lord. Now, if you want an example of somebody dying a hard death, alone, forsaken by family and friends, well, there was Jesus, right? That there he was, the disciples forsook him and fled. He was led out to die. Peter denied him. At the end, Judas betrayed him. There was a man alone. There was a death. There was a hard death, if ever. And he did that for us. Because he had the strength and the foresight and that amazing, I suppose, love, that in one word, uh, for us, knowing that, yes, this is the path I must go. He was not made bitter by it. He was not distracted by that. Because he knew the Father. Because he knew that God was with him. So let's give thanks for him and all that he's enabled. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the Lord, for your Son, and for these symbols of his body and his blood. And we pray, Father, that we might, like Paul, run the race to the end, no matter how hard it might be at the end, and that we might come to the life eternal in your kingdom. For Jesus' sake.